0: I also strongly believe in the concept of common good. If
1: people around you don't do well, you cannot do well. There is no such a thing as doing well if everybody else is suffering. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Cecile Chalafour, head of the West Region for Community Development Banking at JPMorgan Chase. Cecile supports the bank's racial equity commitment by helping to build additional affordable housing units in the Western U.S. She is passionate about this mission and hopes to see more innovation in this sector. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Cecile, welcome to our Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, good morning. I really appreciate you invited me and I look forward to our conversation. So let's start off with some information about your background so our listeners can get to know you. Tell us about your career and even your upbringing. So as you can tell from my accent, I did not grow up in the
0: United States. I grew up in France. I technically never intended to leave France. I went to law school. I was actually planning on teaching law. And then life happened. My father very suddenly passed away at the age of 50, and I changed everything. I decided I didn't want my life to be the same, but not quite the same. So I decided to do something different, and it was supposed to be just for a brief period of time. I had not studied English in school. I studied German and Russian. And so I decided I may have friends here, and I was thinking, why don't I try that for a brief period of time? I came to the United States on a J-1 visa it was quite something. I took a big plunge. Again, I didn't speak English. So when people ask me, how did I learn English and why do I have such a strong accent? I learned on my own. I picked up a book about how to learn English in 90 days. And then because I was going for a job interview in affordable housing, I learned about low-income housing tax credits. So I read a whole book about low-income housing tax credit. English language comes from Latin and Old French in many ways. I was able to pick it up quickly. My funny story is always that at the beginning, I was only able to talk about law and finance and all of this good thing, and I could say nothing about everyday life. It was definitely a challenge, but it was a very interesting one because what happened was along the way, I met wonderful people who trusted me, who opened the door, who were not stopped by the fact that at the beginning, I didn't even speak English. I did not finish my PhD because I came here and I decided to stay. I had to change the whole course of my life, and oh, I don't regret it. I was lucky enough that I found a passion, and with that, a successful career in all the ways that matter to me, including banking. And how did I get into banking? Because I had a friend who said at some point, in a different institution, but who said, I'm looking for somebody who who knows affordable housing, not a banker. Are you interested? And I said, why not? And it turned into a lifelong career.
1: That is so amazing. Just the fact that this tragic death of your father really propelled you on this very different path, but that also you were able to teach yourself so many things by reading and doing it on your own, whether that was English or affordable housing. That is really incredible. What drew you to affordable housing as a career path? You know, what was it about that sector and about the mission that was so important to you? Growing up, my parents were very active
0: politically and in terms of activism in a variety of different causes, including against racism. My father was also an urbanist. He had shared with me stories about slum housing and what it meant to people in their everyday life. That obviously has influenced me deeply, personally and professionally. Personally, I also strongly believe in the concept of common good. If people around you don't do well, you cannot do well. There is no such a thing as doing well if everybody else is suffering. Professionally, that has translated in terms of how do I pick what I do and how do I do it? Why affordable housing? Well, affordable housing is not just about brick and mortar. It's not about building a beautiful building somewhere where people will come in. Obviously, it's very important, but it's about a whole lot more than that. It's about potentially changing somebody's life trajectory. Let me give you an example. Years ago, in one of my prior jobs, I was trying to buy a building in downtown L.A. It was a hotel that was being used as housing. And I entered a room where you had two kids. It was a room, not a one-bedroom apartment, right, with a bunk bed, with piles of clothes. The neighbor was watching them because their mom was walking too far. She couldn't be with them, and she had no way to pay for real childcare. What this was, was a place where the kids didn't have a parent to help them with homework. They had a mom who came exhausted every day, back from work, had no money to do preventive health care. All she could do was deal with emergencies, right? This was a place where nobody should live. no kid, but no adult either. A shame. Really, truly a shame. Their place was clean. The building was horrible, right? So that means more like asthma, meaning more school days missed, no way to cook. And this is in a food desert. It's in Skid Row in downtown LA. You cannot find a good grocery store with healthy products, right? So think about allowing that family to move into affordable housing. What does it mean? It means suddenly having parents who have the time to help out the kids. It means parents who can take care of their own health and their kids' health. Parents who might be closer to their job, so they have better opportunities to actually find a job that makes sense, where they can make a little bit more money. That changed their whole life for those kids and for the parents, right? That means more opportunities more ability to be healthy. Think about what it means for our communities. It means a better economy. It means all of us doing much better. Fundamentally, I believe that when you invest in affordable housing in our communities, we invest in
1: ourselves and that drives everything I do. It is so powerful. Just the thought that home is really such the center of life and about being able to live a healthy life and a good life with your family. And it really all starts there in terms of having an affordable, safe place to be. So thank you for that. Really appreciate your starting with that. Can you tell us about your current role in community development banking? Tell us what you do. Currently, I manage
0: the West for community development banking, more precisely community development real estate, which is a part of community development banking. What it is, is I manage our affordable housing platform for the West. That's construction and permanent financing for large multifamily apartment buildings. All we do is deeply targeted housing. So it's rent restricted and income restricted. So really set aside for low-income population. Usually they are, I'm going to be a little bit technical, but they are below 60% of area median income. So there is an actual threshold. So that means it can be homeless people. It can be people with a job. It happens to be a job that doesn't pay very well. So we provide the conventional debt in a public and private partnership. A whole lot of the funding that makes the project feasible comes from a program called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is a federal program and state program. And public funding, federal, local, it takes a whole lot of resources to make those projects happen. A home for a single mom, maybe her first home, a senior on fixed income who has been living in his car, a low income family, a whole lot of people with special needs, veterans. So that's what we do. We finance those projects.
1: And there's so many stakeholders, as you're saying. It's not typical, just have one client that you're making a loan to, for example. You're really involving so many people in the community and at the government levels. How do you do that? How do you balance so many competing needs and make sure you're all getting things done for the greater good? Definitely. Affordable housing is not for the faint of heart. Technically, I would say to be fair,
0: the developers are really the ones who balance all of this. Our job is to make their life easier. Our job is to bring the best we can as a firm in terms of the resource we have and our team. By the way, we have the best team in the country, I swear, because not only they're expert, but they're deeply dedicated to affordable housing. When it's hard because you have to coordinate legal work, different requirements, right, from all those public lenders, the developer, the reality of a neighborhood and us You have to do your best to be a problem solver. You cannot just say, oh my gosh, that's so complicated. Too much hair. This is scary. Or it's too hard. Or we don't have to do that. That's true. There are a lot of things we don't have to do. But if we can, and it's safe for the firm, it's the right thing to do, then we have to try harder. So that's what we do. That's what I ask for myself every day. Try harder. And that's what I
1: expect from people around me. And that's actually what they do because they believe in it. So hearing you speak and just knowing your background, I know you're very passionate and supportive of championing women and supporting broader diversity efforts at the bank and in your role. What are some of the ways that you do that, whether it's in your formal day-to-day job or even in things you do outside? So I strongly believe, obviously, that diversity is imperative. I strongly see the
0: value of it. I come from a racially diverse family. I have a daughter that's neurodiverse. Myself, obviously, I'm a woman in commercial real estate, which is still not the most common. And I have an accent. And I have been lucky and I'm grateful for all the people who didn't close the door on me. Like a lot of us, I realized that you cannot do all this effort around inclusion if you don't start with yourself. So one of the things I did at some point, like a lot of people, when George Floyd was murdered, instead of just being proactive externally, I turned internally also to see what it meant to me to have privilege and to be able to acknowledge that and bias. One of the hardest things I did as a leader was to have a conversation with my team, make myself vulnerable, having a very open conversation about race, what it meant to all of us. Very challenging. But what it did is a few things, right? It showed that it could be done, that there was value in being done, that it made us more proximate. My team reacted amazingly well, and they engaged. And it really opened a whole lot of doors from my perspective. So I build on that. I presented internally at the firm at one of the Juneteenth events, but I've been able to do it also externally at some conferences. My job, which I created for myself too, is to remind people when we make choice on who do we fund, reminding them that we make the priority around racial equity, inclusion in general, that includes disabled people. One of my job is to always be that voice, even if I'm not perfect, but always remember that side of things. For women, I led a group through our fast forward program, which means like facilitating a conversation for women who are going through some education program, but I was fascinating. It's like how you learn that, you know, you think you're giving to others and they give you so much in return. Oh my goodness, right? Like hearing those women's story and learning from them and realizing we have so much in common and I love hearing other people sharing tips. So that's what diversity and inclusion is. It's not just a one way street. And obviously that includes mentorship all the time. Some of it very formal, some of it informal. I have been lucky to have many mentors over the year. I never say no if somebody asks to talk to me, even if it's just one quick conversation about it. How did I get into my career? And that is inclusion too. Even though we work in communities, all our partner is still not a very diverse environment. And so it's pushing our philanthropy team, it's pushing other philanthropy team, it's being on board and pushing them. It's about being a voice all the time. It's not just one specific activity, it's always remembering, you know, not speaking for yourself,
1: speaking for others who are not at the table. Well, thank you for being just such a role model in so many ways. I mean, the fact that you take the time to speak with people, that you're really thinking about engaging in the community, and that you understand the value of being a mentor to others, I think is so important. So it's something that we really encourage our listeners and the broader community to think about for themselves and how can they continue to give back. So thank you for really bringing that to life. So I would love to talk to you about affordable housing. We hear that term a lot. What does that actually mean? How does one calculate what affordable housing is? Affordable housing is not cheap housing.
0: What affordable housing means is that people should not spend more than 30% of their income, whatever it is, towards housing costs. So that can be rent and utilities. That can be a mortgage with insurance and taxes, right, and utilities. If you spend more than that, it means you're overburdened, and technically the place you live is not affordable to you. Current crisis affects a lot more people than the vast majority of people think about. Obviously, extremely low-income people and homeless people, but it's also people who have a job who are currently not able to find housing that is affordable to them. That doesn't mean they don't have any money. It just mean it will cost them more than 30% of their income. Technically, in our business, what it means, it's also income-restricted housing and rent-restricted housing because of the public program we work with. What it means is that housing is not just affordable. It is set aside and guaranteeing they will not be more than they can afford long-term.
1: After the COVID crisis, did you see just much greater demand for affordable housing? And did that change in terms of geographically where it's needed? Yes, the pandemic, because of the rise in housing
0: costs has made it even worse and, you know, exacerbated all the flaws we had. It virtually impacts every community nationwide at a different level, but it includes large metropolitan areas and rural areas. It's actually quite shocking. I mean, the bottom line, right, is we have a big gap in terms of housing availability, and obviously that drives the cost up. I'm focusing on rental, but that's true, obviously, on homeownership, and it all fits together. When you have too many people going after the same stock, obviously that pushes the price up. What I would say, though, is we have known for a long time, that's not new that it affects some population more than others. It affects black and brown communities a whole lot more. The pandemic made it more obvious and worse, but that's not new. In the world of affordable housing, what we know is the history of redlining shows that housing policies can do a lot of damage. They can create structural inequalities, some of them racially driven, and their history is very negative. On the plus side, what he shows is that good housing policies can make a big difference. And that's what community
1: development is all about. So tell us about some of the things that the bank is working on now to help people and communities. The bank is actually doing quite a lot, and I'm very, very proud
0: to work for a firm that's committing so much to my passion in many ways. Building on our investments, we are helping drive inclusive growth by committing 30 billion by the end of 2025 to a variety of programs that are meant to encourage economic growth and opportunities for Black, Latino, and Hispanic population. That's major. But what's major is not just philanthropy. What is different, it's we were given the mandate, and we all embrace it, right, that it's about how we do business, that to do systemic change, we need to do our business differently and trying to influence people to do the same. So a major shift in how we approach community development. What it means in my world, and as part of this $30 billion commitment, is there is $14 billion that is committed to advancing affordable housing. And what it meant is funding an additional 100,000 more rental units nationwide through loans, equity investment, and a variety of programs, including supporting community development financial institutions. They support innovation, technical capacity. So it's a big part of the puzzle. So when you think about it, it's a whole lot of money. And I'm very proud to say that not only, I mean, for our part, for community development banking, 2 billion of it is us, right? Right. We have delivered on that goal, and more importantly, we have been told to keep doing more, right? And obviously we want to do it, but that's a major mandate from the firm to do that, to commit this kind of investment to the field. Before this pledge, I do want to make that point, JP Morgan Chase already did believe that affordable housing is a key tool in achieving racial equity, right? So this is not new, but you can see how this major commitment is really bringing us and hopefully others to a different level for real systemic change. But let me give you two examples. So one is in Seattle. It's a place called Sacred Medicine House being developed right now by a group called Chief Seattle Club. And this project is supposed to bring in about two and a half year, 120 units of affordable housing for formerly homeless people who are disabled, and the group was building this project is focusing specifically on American Indian and Alaska Native population. So deeply in population that's very vulnerable, and you know I'm sure the project will be full with very happy people in only a couple of days as soon as it's available. Another project, another example is in Los Angeles, one of the most complex projects we funded. This is a project developed by Bridge Housing and Coalition for Responsible Development. This is on a site that was close to the LA Riots in 1992. The site sat vacant for 30 years. Many promises were made to the community to see development there and they were broken over and over and over. This is now under construction. What's coming here, thanks to those developers and all our partners, is about 176 units of housing. It's two different projects, but 176 of housing for homeless seniors, for families, low-income families, and transitional age youth. We also bring a grocery store in a neighborhood and a transit plaza, meaning access to good jobs too. So this is like a very transformative project for a neighborhood that has seen very little investment over the years. You can see how that can transform a community.
1: They're really inspiring stories. Do you find that when you come in and the project is completed, it does bring in other benefits, your point, like more grocery stores or additional investment by that local city or state government to then continue to improve things? Yes, those projects tend to be catalytic for the neighborhood
0: because people also see, oh my goodness, there is investment coming. I can invest my own money, right? So it can be from public players. It can be for just the people who live there who are willing to do
1: like small entrepreneurship type of activities. So yes, it does.
0: Is it always enough? No.
1: Do you find for the people who are able to take advantage of this that it really can impact families on a multi-generational level? So it's not just the current family that's there, but maybe it's down the road, their kids and how their kids can grow up differently?
0: Oh, absolutely. Like Again, if you have a family, like earlier we described, where suddenly the parents can be there to do homework with their kids, where the kids are going to a good school, they're healthy, they're not missing as many school days because they're not healthy. They have more likelihood to go to college, right? To break the cycle of property we talk about mentoring, they see other people with a different model. They have access to the network that most people have access to and people in poor community don't have access to. So they have more opportunities in terms of career. Well, guess what that means? That means the next generation will start from a different place. And there are studies that actually show that when you have multi-generation of poverty and disinvestment, it can actually create trauma. There is something such as trauma from poverty and from generation of poverty. And people don't trust others, don't trust the system because they were completely ignored, not supported. And that can translate in how you look at everything, right? Your opportunities, your dreams, your willingness to take risk. All of it. So yes, absolutely. If you change one generation, you really change the other ones after that.
1: So so important. You know, when you think about this work and all the things that motivated you to be in this space, what kind of impact do you hope you are having in terms of not only the developments themselves, but maybe the broader conversation on affordable housing? I approach my job every day with a sense of duty and responsibility, and it is not
0: just on to deliver on goals. This is not just transaction. Deeply, we know there is no way to fix the affordable housing crisis at this point based on just the tools we have. So we do need to encourage innovation. Innovation is hard. This is not for the faint of heart. If the market could do affordable housing, it would have done it. There is a reason why it's hard, right? The numbers don't always work. Encouraging innovation means working with developer, thought leader, all our industry players, being at the table as a resource, being able to bounce ideas, answer questions, connect people, right? That's what I do all day long, to be honest. Can we do this in a responsible way? Can we stretch ourselves a little bit to meet the need? That's my job. And that's the impact I'm hoping to have is to not just have been part of the statue quo and deliver more project, is to have been part of the creative thinking on innovation to bring new tools so we can finally dramatically change people's opportunities in our communities.
1: And Cecile, when you talk about innovation and in affordable housing, what do you mean by that? What are the new tools that are exciting to you that you think will really bring about more change? So where I see a lot of innovation coming
0: is for the population called the missing middle, which is technically a population, again, who cannot find affordable housing, meaning housing that represents less than 30% of their income, but they have income. Hopefully, what we're trying to do, all of us right now, is to see if there is a way to create housing for that population without going after the public resources that are already really very much needed for the most vulnerable population. We're not there yet. And what kind of program is going to come out of that in terms of support on credits, on operating subsidy? We don't know. We're all experimenting with it. What's different for us in my business is when you think about affordable housing, the most low-income people, let's be honest, there is no market risk. These units are full, sadly, the time they come in line, right? They search so much need. It's really hard to do those projects, but it's not about market risk. When you start talking about the missing middle, that is actually market risk. Why? What does that mean? It means the need is so big that when you open the project, it's full very quickly. There are long waiting lists, right? You do know there will be demand for those units and people will be able to pay for it. When you talk about the market... You don't know. You're assuming a rent that's going to support your cost As a developer, you want some profit, right? But you set the rent at center level, people might or might not be able to pay for it. They might or might not be willing to pay for it. That's what we call market risk. So it's at the intersection of the market world and the affordable world. And the tools so far are like completely siloed. So that population in the middle hasn't been really addressed. All of us are trying to experiment with it. We are only one tiny piece of that. Again, there are a lot of people at the table. But I do hope that out of this major crisis, new tools will come. All the big affordable housing tools like Section 8, low-income housing, tax credit, all of these programs over the years came from major crises. This is a major crisis. And we will play our part on the conventional side, right? To make the box, again, fit for that population. Different risk, different style, but we can
1: do that. Cecile, it's so interesting to hear you talk about these things. I really appreciate your teaching us about the need and what it means and where it's going. And I'm just wondering, what is something that you'd like our listeners to take away from this conversation? Two
0: different things. On affordable housing, I would say, look at your community. When you hear that there's an affordable housing program coming, project, don't just dismiss it heartily. Please take the time to feel out for whom. The people who are going to live there are probably already in your community. You know them. Take the time to understand who is going to help and who is going to develop it. And you might be very proud to have it in your neighborhood. And then advocate for it. Embrace it. We need more advocates out there. But again, it comes from information. Uh, A lot of people react to affordable housing from a place of fear. Again, that's what I'm saying. It's the people who are already in your community that are going to benefit from that. So please try to be an advocate when you can also like people to take from hopefully to be helpful to them from me is I would say don't be afraid to take risk be willing to be uncomfortable I came here I wasn't definitely a banker obviously I didn't speak English I'm hugely grateful for the people I met along the way who supported me grateful for all the opportunities this opened for me I would have never had that if I had not taken risk and so it's absolutely worth it and it's not uncalculated risk I'm not saying that It's just push yourself a little bit and trust yourself and trust others. The second thing is find your own way, find your passion, find your mission and let it be your North star all the way through. It will serve you well. Never waver from it. Never.
1: Thank you so much, Cecile. It's so nice to speak with you. And we're so proud of what you're doing to help our communities out in the West. Thanks again. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Cecile Chalafort. It's inspiring to hear about her personal journey and how she built her career. The work that she's doing is transformative for so many families and for our local communities. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash WOTM. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Sapperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.